Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, um, because we're a manageable size, please feel free tonight to interrupt me at any time and we can debate or whatever you need to do. Is it warm in here? Yeah. It's nice. Um, and uh, so I'd like to just build a little bit um, on what we were exploring last week in our introduction to the Heart Sutra. And um, as we were exploring last week, we're just going to go through the Heart Sutra line by line. And I think we said it would take three months. Was that how the math worked? Yeah. And then at the end of uh, class last week, someone asked me who Allen Ginsberg is. And then I realized that because one person doesn't know who Allen Ginsberg is, we'll work on some of his poetry for the three months after the Heart Sutra. And it's actually a good flow, I think, because the Heart Sutra turned Allen Ginsberg inside out and created Allen Ginsberg in many ways. So. Um. <clears throat> so does everybody have a copy? One of the ways that I interpret the Heart Sutra just for myself is uh, just thinking it in terms of the heart of the matter. So the heart of things, what's the heart of things? And especially at this time of year where we spend so much time um, talking to ourselves about what the heart of this season is all about. You know, because there's the pull to do certain familial obligations and certain uh, materialistic obligations like buying certain kinds of gifts worth certain amounts of money. Does anybody do this? Yeah. And, um, and so it's interesting because I think at this time of year, especially because it's New Year's, which is a kind of ritual that we all have agreed to, um, I think we're all asking ourselves what matters. What matters. And we talked about it last week in terms of money, right? If you, if you lost, if you found out that you've lost your job, which is happening for so many people right now, um, what would change in terms of what really matters? What would change for you? Um, you can go through very hard times with very little and still have everything really matter 
in a way that's heartfelt and um, nourishing. And um, that's what I think of as the Heart Sutra. It's it's pointing towards that. It's pointing towards that. And I, one of the, the pieces that has always stood out for me is that you have this noble bodhisattva practicing the deep practice of prajnaparamita. And just this notion that this sutra is a description of somebody talking about the essence of practice when they're at a threshold. So they're already practicing really deep prajnaparamita. Param meaning to go across, ita, it's kind of like um, going across to the other shore. And prajna is a beautiful word. Um, we covered this, I think, last week. Pra meaning beforehand, and nya meaning to know. Before knowing, which is always translated as wisdom. But uh, I like before knowing. Knowing before knowing. To know something before you know about something. To, to know the heart of the matter. You know, it's like saying, what time is it? You know. Someone asked Albert Einstein, what is time? And he answered, it's what a clock measures. It's what a clock measures. And you know this when you're syncopated. When you're in time, you become time. And there's just timing as you, you. And you're not so much in time or of time. It's just not a concern. It's just time happening. It's not measured in the way we usually think about time. And that's actually, you could even use that as a kind of koan, an inquiry practice, you know, is to ask, what time is it? (laughs) (laughs) What time is it, really? What time is it? To ask these kind of questions that open you up outside of the conditioning And it's interesting that that the sutra is happening, this teaching is happening at a moment where someone is already doing really deep practice. Someone's already doing really deep practice. And some of you who've done retreat, you know what this is like, that you go into retreat and then there's a point in the retreat where you actually get to um, maybe talk to the teacher. And uh, you're already doing deep practice. So you might hear some instructions or response to a question you might have that you've heard a thousand times, but you hear it in a different way, you see, because you hear it in terms of the heart of the matter. You see? And, um, and this sutra goes straight for emptiness. Not as a thing, but as a negation. Right? So right when you're getting to the heart of the matter, then you pull out the sword of emptiness. And then you look at things in terms of emptiness, the first thing that's looked at is the skandhas, the five aggregates, the five groupings, the five ways that we talk about clinging. So um, um, we've been talking about the five aggregates as the five aggregates affected by clinging and trying to keep the aggregates as a, as a longer term, not just the five aggregates, but, but what it means to have these groupings, these conditions that come together um, Um, as affected by clinging and not as affected by clinging. And you can look at any grouping like that. Like later on, he looks at the nose. 
your own nose. This is my nose. It can't be so. It's not your nose. But you really look at the nose, and there's no nose there. The nose is empty of nose. The nose is just a convenient term we use to orient the attention so that we can call something something, and we can make a thing out of it. But the nose is so dependent on so many different conditions that you can't actually figure out physiologically where your nose starts and where it ends. It's not a thing because of uh, interdependence. Secondly, because it's impermanent, it's not an everlasting thing in time and space anyways. Some people are happy with their nose when they're young and then they get a different kind of nose as they age. Then they're not happy with it anymore. And then they change it. And then they're really not happy with it. So, the noble Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, while practicing the deep practice of Prajnaparamita, so uh, we recorded last week, so if you weren't here for that, listen to it so that. Um, you know the angle we took on those first three sentences. Looked upon the five skandhas and seeing they were empty of self-existence said, Hear Shariputra. This is a big thing, okay? To tell Shariputra something? Okay? Shariputra is like the master of Buddhist Abhidharma. This is like the master philosopher psychologist. And he's being told... But the way, and this is overlooked, I think, a lot by the scholars. But I think what's so interesting is that the first thing he says is here. Here, Shariputra. He's not saying, um, well, Shariputra. He's saying here. And this echoes a little bit the way we were looking at the Buddha's teaching on uh, this ground. Do you remember that? It's, it kind of echoes that a little bit. He's saying here, Shariputra. Look here. Nowhere else. Just look here. Look here. And it also is challenging the early Theravada tradition, which some of us know through the Vipassana tradition, where you go through the landscape of the body and you, you know, focus on the nose and just feeling nose. Focus on the eye and feeling eye. And he's about to say, not even that. Like, there's not even an eye. Not even a nose. Like, go past that. Go past that. What time is it? To go past that. Here, Shariputra. Here, Shariputra. Emptiness is not separate. Oh, I'm sorry. Form is emptiness. Form, everything you see as form is empty of an inherent self that's becoming. Okay? The wall's not becoming anything. The floor's not becoming anything. It's just momentary arising of conditions in awareness dependent on so many other conditions. So he's not saying there's no form, but he's saying that the form that you look at is shunya, it's hollow. Okay? Kaz Tanahashi uh, translates shunya as, um, because the word shu, the Sanskrit root, 
means uh, pregnant or swollen. And so Kastanhashi translates shunyata as boundlessness, which is turning it on its head a little bit, right? Because it's not empty as a negation, as a void, but it's a negation of the thing to see the vastness. That, that if everything's interdependent, it's not like a void. It's a, it's a boundlessness. It's a fountain. It's, it's everything. And it, that's a nice way of thinking about, about shunyata. So that when you say something's empty, you, you have to also ask, what's it empty of? And what it's empty of is um, um, a, a self-identity, a thing that exists in time and space. So form is empty. And then he has to say, emptiness is form. Emptiness is form. And the way, this is not a a traditional interpretation, but the way I understand that from a sort of practice-oriented perspective is that if you just said form is emptiness, then you're going to get an idea of emptiness. And then you start to think of emptiness as a thing. You know, like it's a nothing, it's nihilism, it's zero, it's blank. But emptiness is empty of emptiness. You see? So emptiness is just an idea that we use as a set of glasses, as a strategy, as a tool, as a way of looking. You see? So there's no such thing as emptiness. Emptiness is just language. It's just theory that we're using so that we can see. And remember, philosophy in the Indian sense is not like in the Greek sense. In the Greek sense, philosophy is the love of wisdom. You know? but, but philosophy, the word in Sanskrit is darshana, which means to see. It's where we get drishti, gaze. So, it's how, so philosophy is how to see. So the philosophy of emptiness is about how to see things. But there's no such thing as emptiness. Does this make sense? A little bit? Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. So, obviously, form is not separate from emptiness. Form is not separate from emptiness. In mathematics, it's called an isomorphism. Right? where you find in different categories similar repeating characteristics. And then you see how those repeating characteristics can belong to the opposite category. You see? So it's um, the way that it's... The traditional interpretation is is waves and water. Right? So the wave comes out of the water, and that's the form, the particular form. But that form, the wave, is actually water. You see? So you could say wave is water, water is wave. But water is not separate from the wave. You see? Emptiness is not separate from the form. Form is not separate from emptiness. Whatever is form is emptiness. And whatever is emptiness is form. Is that clear? 
so that the way things exist is they exist having the characteristic of emptiness. They exist having that characteristic. But that characteristic is not giving it an essence. The characteristic is giving you a set of glasses. And um, if you could think about this in terms of teaching methodology, what you're trying to do in this practice is you're trying to push over to see emptiness, to, to see things in terms of interdependence, in terms of impermanence, in terms of not being me or mine. And uh, some schools are just pushing you in the, that direction. But that's not enough. I used to think that that's what you were trying to do in this practice, is just like see everything in terms of samadhi. You know, but that's just, that's one-sided practice. Right? That's not middle, middle path practice. And I go around some days like blissed out, seeing everything in terms of interdependence. And it like only worked in certain kinds of conditions. And I think some of us have this idea that that a fully enlightened person just sees everything in terms of intimacy. But you're a fully enlightened person. So they see it just the way you see it. You see? Two sides of the same coin. So once you can see things in terms of emptiness, then you really start studying the self but you're seeing it in terms of its interconnection with other things. You see? This would be this will be a great project, you see. The conversation between Buddhism and psychology is like so young right now. And it's all about, you know, clinical technique. But one day I think what will happen is we'll really be able to to start to see the self not in terms of just our family history, not in terms of this thing that's born in childhood, but to see the self in terms of interdependence, to really to have a clinical theory that sees people in terms of their water and their television and their video games and their their electronic network Facebook, in their Facebook. You know. Facebook is like the perfect demonstration of emptiness. Because you see somebody in the context of their friends. And I, I've never been on Facebook, but like I've looked at someone's picture on Facebook. My sister's on Facebook. But I haven't joined. But I... But I, I always see her picture and then wonder about her in terms of the friends around her. And I know on MySpace, you can choose who your friends are, right? So then you can think about someone in terms of their friends. Am I the only one who's thought about that? <laughs> Facebook yoga. It's going to be a whole new kind of... I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> And so um, a thing only exists in a moment in terms of its context. So if you have a table, you call that a table, but it's a table 
only when you're sitting at it and using it for that designated purpose. I asked Arlen about this. He's our son. He's five. And he has a great definition of emptiness. He says, a table is a table, but not when it's a fort. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) When it's a fort, it's not a table anymore. So we say, Arlen, please don't do this again with the table. He says, it's not a table, it's a fort. (laughs) So the table is empty of tableness when it's a fort. Make sense? Yeah. Let's just read that one more time, because some people find this confusing. Here, Shariputra. Okay, so he's not saying, well, Shariputra, let me tell you a tale. Let me explain to you the way the world is. He's saying, so Shariputra is already very still. Okay, very, very still. So imagine this. You're like the calmest you've ever been in your life. You're doing such deep practice, such stillness. And right at that moment, somebody says, here. Okay? Look exactly right here. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Emptiness is not separate from form. Form is not separate from emptiness. Whatever is form is emptiness. Whatever is emptiness is form. What does this mean for you? Yeah. I, I can't even call them this anything about matter and energy and like modern physics and how as soon as you read it, it just brought that up for me. Yeah. So, yeah. I just saw that there was nothing. That's the root of everything. Emptiness. But then the form came out of nothing. Sure. Yeah, and now they've built some, like the large, what is it? How many billion of dollars this accelerator they just built in uh, Switzerland? Right? It goes across the border. It goes across the border, yeah. Because they're not satisfied that they found what they found, and now they have to accelerate it. And actually, quantum physics is doing the opposite too, right? This is how the uh, the atomic clock works, is that, because you can take take matter and you can slow it down um, by freezing it, right? And so when you freeze it, the colder and colder it gets to absolute zero, the slower and slower things get. And that's our current definition of time, is that we only know a flow of time because we found a stopping point. And the stopping point, which is how we measure, how we use clocks, the stopping point is just absolute zero. And um, the colder and colder things get, the slower and slower they are, so the easier it is to look at them. And that's what mindfulness is, right? It's slowing down the mental stream so you can see the way things are put together. And if you can't see how they're put together very well, then you can use some of these techniques, like emptiness, impermanence, seeing things as self or as not self, or looking at experience in terms of the skandhas, the groupings, the aggregates. So all these are just techniques you use in order to pay attention to more subtle and subtle layers, levels of reality. 
without blasting rockets off and mining all the lakes in Ontario for uranium. Just sit still. Sitting still. And what comes to mind is how um, when something is given a name, then it becomes a form. But once the name is not there, then there's no thing. Sure. And then the mind says, then it's nothing. But it's not nothing. That's the whole point. It's so big, it can't have a name. Um, it's like slowing down a, a motion picture. Mo they're tw 24p, right? 24 frames per second. And then you slow that down. And the more you slow it down, you see all the pieces that go together. And that's what we're doing in this practice, is we're slowing things down. But you can't slow things down if you have too much theory behind it. And that's the problem with entering the practice through theology, is that you already come in with an answer. So you already start with a creation story, and then you're going around trying to find God. And if you go and try and find God, it presumes that you have, there is something to find. And then the, the seeking... You know, the seeking and the looking obscures what Shariputra is saying. Shariputra is saying, here, <laughs> here, here, here. Form is emptiness. Form is emptiness. And then later on, I'm not going to jump ahead too much, but later on he says, when you can see that, then you see that there's no such thing as increasing and decreasing. That form doesn't increase or decrease. And um, obviously nothing can increase or decrease because it's not the thing that's increasing or decreasing. It's just transformation happening. There isn't like a thing that's growing up or regressing even. Does this make sense a little bit? Well, a thing only exists in the moment it exists and then it becomes something else. And then the mind projects onto that space and time. And so then we say that thing is increasing or decreasing. But don't there just some linearity? Like, and that's a hard one to grasp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's linearity. And that's the form. But it's not increasing or decreasing. What do you think? Anything. In any way, increasing or decreasing. Nothing is increasing or decreasing. It's like taking your, your music and turning it up. You didn't just turn up that music louder. It's like that's another experience contingently arising. 
that's flowing from form to form to form to form to form. But inside that, there's not like a thing that's actually, in our house right now, it's the clash. And, and like London calling is not getting louder and louder and louder. There are moments of perception that are perceiving the loudness occurring, but there's not a thing there that's increasing in sound. It's constructs, like we have all these mental constructs that we're yeah. sort of, you know, shifting, moods are shifting, and yeah. lines passing. Yeah. Yeah, whose time passing for? Yeah. Time's not passing. For you, time is passing. But time's not going anywhere. Two seconds just went by. But for time, two seconds didn't just go by. For this wall, two seconds didn't go by. Another way of understanding that is that you, 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 you enter into your activity, but you enter into your activity without increasing or decreasing. So you don't enter into an activity trying to gain something or protecting what you might lose. Gain and loss. You enter into the flow of the activity. But most of the time we enter in trying to gain something. Yeah, yeah. Not making progress. And then progress happens, but it's not happening to something. So hard. <laughs> so hard. The mind needs all this to congeal around because it has to improve my life somehow. <laughs> and it does improve your life. It makes it because it gives you this whole thing is about. Pragna, knowing before knowing, cultivating that skill of wisdom, knowing before knowing. Our son got a drum set for, for Hanukkah, Christmas, something, from Santa. <laughs> and um, so uh, he doesn't know anything about how to play. So he's just listening to the clash all day long. And like by the end of and he's playing all day long. And by the end of like every hour, you just he's getting it. He's getting it. And you know there's that point coming out when he when he gets his first lesson and then he doesn't thinks he doesn't know how to play anymore. Right? You've all had that experience, right? Yeah. Teaching children how to make art. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You were mentioning earlier in regards to something like entering into the flow. Yeah. Now, is that, can you understand that as something affected by clinging? This idea, if there is a flow, sort of linearity of the concept yeah. follows some flow? Right? Or is there another way to think of it? Not necessarily. I mean, if you ever look at flow, flow has flow in it that isn't always in the same direction as the flow. 
like a river, you look at a river that's flowing, and if you're standing on the shore, it looks like the river is flowing. But if you look closely at the river, it has different flows in it. There's a flow moving one way, a flow moving another way. There can be even a transverse flow over a river. Um, And then the ground you're on is also flowing. Because the ground you're on also has the nature of water. Because it's coming apart and changing. And so from the perspective of being in a canoe on the same river at the same spot, the ground looks like it's flowing. Because from day to day, the, the sides of the river are changing. And so to see things in that context to feel your life in that context. So that means then you can enter the activity of your life not based on what you can get. And then you activate the Heart Sutra so that it's not philosophy. Or not the way we use philosophy, but it's actually a way of seeing clearly. Seeing things really clearly. Uh Uh-huh. trying to do something like uh, uh, when we were on retreat recently Norman Feldman ended the retreat and he said something nice which is when you go home now stand outside your door before you go in and try and pay attention to what's probably happening on the other side is after being in stillness for silence for three days and I thought that was such a helpful instruction was for me anyways because you come home and you're so quiet you know you're in deep Prajnaparamita and you come home and your five-year-old's playing the clash really <laughs> loud on the other side and your partner's stressed out because you've been on retreat for three or four days. <laughs> so you have to shift and enter that flow and become that flow. And so if you have an... A, what Nagarjuna, we're going to get to him next year, but Nagarjuna, when he talks about emptiness, he says... Um, Um, believers in emptiness are incurable. <laughs> right at the end of the Madhyamaka, he says, believers in emptiness are incurable. So he just, this incredible text, big text, on emptiness, and at the end, right, right at the end he goes, and believers in emptiness are incurable. So if you actually believe in emptiness, there's completely missed the whole thing. There's nothing to hang on to. So if, you, if you're trying to see everything in terms of samadhi, it's really helpful, but once you can do that, then you also have to see things in terms of form. And then you can, you're free for spontaneous activity. But for many years, I tried to just see everything in terms of emptiness. And it was so confusing. 
Like so a reconciling of two sides of the same coin? Yeah. That somehow it's all the same thing? Yeah. And there's no coin. <laughs> I should try that as a bank. <laughs> yeah. But um, if you believe that things is just moving from form to form, uh-huh. then um, do you think that it's um, right to give long-term punishments? Because it wasn't you who did. Like, say you give someone a life sentence. Uh-huh. It wasn't really them who did it. It was yeah. the state they were in. Yeah. So is that wrong? Um, I think that that can be a very helpful way of relating to people who are in uh, long-term... Um, people who are on death row. For people on death row to also come to grips with the form part, which is that your actions have a consequence. There's form. There's a self. And also to see that your actions are based on so many conditions that can allow you to soften, to open, not only to the consequences of your action, but to yourself, that you can't contract around a self that once committed a heinous act. Because that self has changed. It's interesting, isn't it, right? I mean, in, even in a more subtle way in your own life, you know, we've all, we've all done things that have crossed a line, whatever that line is. Maybe it's even the, the illegal line or uh, whatever. But um, you carry that with you now for forever. You carry it. You carry the memory of that. But there's a point in your life when you realize that it's one thing to carry the memory of that and it's a whole other thing to define yourself by it because the feelings around that memory are going to come and go because of this configuration this body and this memory and mind and so on but that if you keep carrying around with you a contraction around that that's not helpful do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And you can forgive yourself and, and vow to never ever go down that path again. Yeah. So the, do you think the self is defined by memory then? Uh, I, I just would rather not define it. By anything. Would um, you say that someone with Alzheimer's is not this, not um, the same self that they used to be? Would you? I'd say that you're not the same self that you were before you asked the question. <laughs> but is there an enduring self? No. Okay. The Heart Sutra is saying no. No, 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 no. And not just like a little no. <laughs> not separate, not form, not emptiness, then no sensation, no perception, no memory, no consciousness, no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no shape, no sound, no smell, 
no taste, no feeling, no thought, no perception, no eye, no conceptual consciousness, no causal link. That's karma. No karma. No ignorance, no old age, no death, no suffering, no sorts of no eightfold path. No knowledge, no attainment, no non-attainment. Because most of us are like, okay, I'm not going to attain anything. (laughs) And no non-attainment. Sometimes it said the Dharma is not going forward, not going backwards, and not being still. And this is a story... uh, 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 Ajahn Sumedho, who was the first uh, Western student of Ajahn Chah in the Thai forest tradition, who went and had a very hard time establishing a monastery in England in the Thai forest tradition. And um, when Ajahn Chah was dying, he wrote a letter to Ajahn Sumedho. Could you imagine this, that your teacher on his deathbed writes you a letter and then you get it in the mail while you're trying to start a monastery for them in England. It's not going well. You're poor. And um, you get, here, here's the letter your teacher wrote to you. So this is the teacher who's asked him to go start a monastery. That's attainment. That's a big job <laughs> to undertake. And the letter said, keep up the good work. Don't go forward. Don't go backwards. Don't be still. don't go forwards the letter is really saying who is going forwards who is going backwards and the mind says okay well then I won't make a move well don't do that either and then you can get to the heart of the matter your true self your original face your face before you were born What was your face before you were born? What time is it? (laughs) It's like we have this thing, New Year's. (laughs) I was saying that earlier tonight, that on your birthday, you're a day older. One day older. But if you look at that, you're not a day older, even. Someone says, oh, your birthday, you blow out the candle and then you're you know, five seconds older, one second older, and then we add all of this drama to it to make ourselves real. You know? Not the, she couldn't come to my birthday. Or <laughs> <they> never. <laughs> but like, this is your birthday. Right now. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to all of you. Oh, and again, happy birthday. <laughs> Or you could flip it around as like, you've just died. You know? You've exhaled, and, and how lucky we are that we also just got to share that moment together. And it can go both ways. It cuts both ways. I wrote a poem today. <laughs> while I was preparing these notes. We are made of karmic life. Karmic life is a lotus blossom. Everyone can see it. It illuminates everything. 
I'll read it again. This, listen this time, though. <laughs> we are made of karmic life. Karmic life is a lotus blossom. Everyone can see it. It illuminates everything. We are made of karmic life. Karmic life is a lotus blossom. Everyone can see it. It illuminates everything. That's what I wrote after reading the line that your nose, no nose, that even your nose is dependently originated. Your nose. How much time have you looked at that? How much time have you looked at your nose? Picked it, analyzed it, focused on it, meditation, all of that, and it's not even yours. Just another manifestation of the natural world in the only way it can manifest in this configuration. 12 billion years of evolution to get that. It's amazing. Doesn't that extend to ourselves, our cold selves? No, 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 no. It doesn't extend to yourself. <laughs> so can you enter the stream of activity in this way? You come into the world empty-handed, and you're going to leave empty-handed. And you don't have to wait until you die to start living empty-handed. It's you just stop picking up everything and, and assembling it like paper mache, you know, like, like attaching it. There's, there's a word they use in French philosophy, assemblage. I don't even know what that means, but I guess it means an assemblage. And, but it's better in French or something, or it's more philosophical, or if you smoke or say it, <laughs> smoke, and feel like an outsider somewhere. Um, yeah, not assembling, not becoming, empty-handed. And then you'll know what time it is, and somebody will come up to you on the street and say, do you have the time? How are you going to respond? And how you respond will show them where your practice is at. If you have superficial practice, you'll say, time is what clocks measure. <laughs> so let's finish chanting. <laughs> 